This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today is Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of sale investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Really a great show for you today. I, I came back from a trip to Europe, and we've got a, uh, some interviews that we conducted in Europe. And we have a, a guest on the first half of the show, Steve Sexauer, the CIO of San Diego Pension Fund, who's going to talk to us about his views, his take from Europe. Uh, but before we get to them, Professor Siegel, the ending the week here, the, the, the tone is positive. The China deal yeah. is going to go through. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, for weeks we, I've been saying what the market wants most of all is a deal. It, it it doesn't care if it's a skinny deal or a fat deal or even an emaciated deal. <laughs> it, it wants a deal. It does not want a trade war. Uh, we seem to be um, moving closer there. There's positive buzz from both sides. Obviously, this has lifted uh, the markets. Uh, we're also getting finally some favorable news about Brexit. Now, Brexit's not a big factor for our market, but certainly it's a big factor for Europe. I know you're going to be uh, talking about that. Uh, so that's another factor. I think also uh, we've had yields turn around. And, uh, you know, despite the, the very poor purchasing managers index, what impressed me about the the data this week was jobless claims dropping another 10,000. Remember, I look at that very closely for early signs that we might be in uh, uh, a real period of weakness. Uh, this, is, this is holding up. Now, we're not going gangbusters. Best estimate that, uh, that I get from my forecasters is the, the third quarter is coming in at, at uh, 1.5 or a little less. So that's going to be on the slow side. But at this point, uh, fourth quarter just began. They're projecting a two percent gain, and uh, if we get a trade deal, uh, we're gonna we're gonna break through new highs. I think uh, without question on uh, on all the major averages. Yeah, so all, all headlines are watching. We've got you know. By, I guess we'll see some more news at the end of the day. Um, any other you know other things you're watching besides the, between this big European news, the, the the China news? Is that the, the just the major stories? Yeah, I mean China China is dominating and it as it as it should we we cannot get 25 percent tariffs i i think that you know i think trump needs <laughs> needs a victory here with all the other news coming out he he wants to say i got a deal now it's not going to be a conclusive but it's enough to i think he's going to say forestall any increase and there'll probably be some decrease and in 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 the current tariffs and they'll probably, you know, say we're we're trying to negotiate the other things. But this is the type of detente that uh, the market wants to hear, and um, it is certainly reacting to that uh, as we see yesterday and today. And any more views on on the on the interest rate side with the, with the ten year moving higher? Is that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 uh, you know October thirtieth. It's 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 a real toss up now. I mean, if we get a trade deal. Um, and the data comes in quite reasonable to now and then, the Fed very well may hold off on an October 30th uh, cut. Um, I think it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I think it's enough on the knife edge right now. Without a trade deal and with some more weakness, I think pretty much we're going to get a cut. But right now we, we might not get a cut, and that's one reason why you're seeing, uh, you know, the interest rates firming up and down you know, the 10-year the just, wow, 175, that was 150 just a week ago. Now, we had another period of time when, when those long rates kind of soared, and then with new weakness, it went back down. But we might that 140.50 might be the, the low of this cycle, and, uh, you know, with between 175 and 2 for the rest of the year uh, with, uh, you know, with a trade deal um, and a pickup, uh, that's, that's well good enough to uh, resume the stock rally. Well, I know you're you're tied up today. Thank you so much for some commentary to start the show here. Thank you very much. Bye. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to our guest, Steve Sexauer, who's the chief investment officer 
uh, at the San Diego uh, County Employer Retirement Association, SDCERA. Uh, Steve and I were together in Europe at the Global Interdependence Center. I was hosting a series of events uh, in Madrid and Frankfurt. Uh, it was a great week on, on listening to European Central Bank's monetary policy around the world. Steve, thanks for joining us on the show today. Jeremy, good afternoon. Um, maybe give us a debriefing. There was a lot of focus on the economy. Uh, everybody, we, we got to hear some worries that maybe Brexit risks weren't priced in. And now, you know, today the, the news is a bit more positive. But what was your big take as you traveled Europe? What's your any takeaways from our, our week over in Europe? Uh, Jeremy, I'd say there's three from all the sessions, both the public and the Chatham House sessions. Uh, one, um, it's all central banking all the time and the focus of uh, the ECB and to some degree the Fed being expected to um, solve all the problems. And I think one of the bright uh, conversations came from the public session in Madrid where both uh, uh, President Evans and Vice President uh, de Guinos basically said that you know there's limits in, in, in to what the central banks can do because it takes fiscal policy, regulatory, and labor market changes to uh, get long-term growth. So, But right now, it's all the central banks all the time. I think the second takeaway was on Brexit, a uh, senior person from Spain, Chatham House Rules, so you know, they're just uh, on a bank board and very well connected, basically said, you know, Brexit's a big issue for Europe. It's a really big issue. And you saw that, I think, this week in the FT when the Wolfsburg, Germany, where the auto industry said, you know, we don't get a deal. we got a real big problem here. 100,000 jobs could be at risk. So the old rule, all negotiating occurs at or after the deadline is, my takeaway was uh, it's probably even. It's not one-sided that, you know, the U.K. holds no cards and the EU holds them all. So I think, you know, the probability of something working out positively is much higher than uh, the markets are priced in. Um, And then the third takeaway is – Nobody has a good solution for the debt problem and the productivity problem, but everybody knows what it is. So that would be my three big takeaways. And in your, when you think about all those commentaries, everybody's focused on the central banks and even fiscal. You've made some comments about, well, what are we doing to focus on the real economy? What's your, what's your sense on you know, where the conversation is from monetary and fiscal to what people should be focused on? Yeah, so on that point, we, we had a Chatham House session where there were eight thoughtful presenters, and, and Jeremy, you were one of them, and all of them except one, so um, focused on either monetary policy or something to do with kind of this macro management, and only one person talked about long-term growth being the combination of how many people are working, employment, and how productive they are, productivity. And so any economy anywhere in the world for any time frame you add those two variables up, you know what the growth was or will be. And, you know, we looked at these, what you know, could be viewed as very <laughs> dismal numbers where in the West, in the developed West, employment is growing now well less than 1%. And productivity, whether you look at Japan, the U.S., most of the EU is trending down around one. Some are above one, some are below one. But yeah, those two numbers together, all of a sudden we're in a less than 2% growth world. And there just wasn't a lot of talk about what it would take to get that number higher, either through smarter immigration policies or real investments in human capital. And at, at the same time that's happening, we're looking at this just dramatic change in the, I call it Gutenberg 2.0, given the change in the technology and what can be done to be more productive with artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it just seems to be this disconnect that that's happening on one side, restructuring our world, but all the policy people are still focused on what the central bank can do and and some sort of fiscal stimulus. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the Gutenberg 2.0. It's within Siegel's uh, The Future for Investors that I helped him on back in 15 years ago now. I mean, we talked a lot about he thought the global productivity growth would actually catch up and that the you know opening up the world's body of knowledge to you know the billion people in China, a billion people in India, that the sort of new inventions that would come that they were previously cut off from the world – that now they can build on it, um, and it's you just haven't seen this this sort of global productivity catch up in in some ways. Well, you know, there's this old saying: "Where you stand is where you sit." We in the West haven't been able to see it yet in a big way, um, but if you look out, I mean, look at China, look at the dramatic gains in wealth and well-being across a billion people. And, and look at the progress in, in other parts of emerging markets. You know, it's a, 
there's a new manufacturer of cell phones in Africa. I think they're going to get smartphones down to under 200 bucks because it's it's how you have to live now. The the gains around the world of productivity of this technology are dramatic. Um, if you're in Kenya, you can use your phone and the telephone company's books and records to move money around. And that sure beats walking around with cash in your pocket a half a day to pay your mortgage. So I think it has happened. I think the forecast back then was right, but it's mostly so far happened in emerging markets. Actually, the, hi, this Li Chen. That's very interesting. I think, uh, do you like mind to speculate, like which part of the developed market this, that's keeping you know the pro- productivity growing? Oh, that's a good question, Li Chen. I, th- I think part of it is measurement, and part of it is timing. So let's look at retail. Everybody knows that you know Amazon is is the Pac Man that's eating the world. And the retailers are struggling, and the real estate people that own the malls, the retailers, are up in arms. But, you know, that's creative destruction. But let's just think of the economics of shopping pre-Amazon. You went to the store. Okay, what's a store? Well, a store is a building. It's staff. And kind of an unknown fact that people don't pay attention to is shrinkage in retail borders on 10%. So the cost, you know, you, you go in and buy a pair of jeans, let's say, it's 100% markup. But the profit margin on that's very small. Well, how can I have a 100% markup with a small profit margin? Well, I got to pay for the store, I got to pay for the staff, I got to pay for the inventory. I um, make mistakes in ordering. You don't always get the styles right, and I got shrinkage. Now I have a computer I've already paid for, or better than that, I have a mobile phone I've already paid for it. The internet's already paid for. I download an app, I push a button, and the jeans show up the next day. So the the, the economic gains to that are enormous. Um, I think we'll see them over time. Now, the problem is it's very painful if you're a retailer or you work in a retail store um, or, you're, or you own REITs that are in properties. But, you know, no change, no growth. So I, I think it's coming. It just uh, takes a while. But secondly, I, I gave this example in emerging markets with phones. You know, people are paying in China. That's because it's a leap. Like, if, you know, I, all of the emerging markets went from – they didn't do landlines. They just did mobile. It's more effective. In the U.S., you know, it's not that big of an inconvenience. Okay, I go to Starbucks, I use my charge card, or I use some Apple Pay. You know, the gain to just using my phone isn't that big yet because we're pretty efficient over here. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Steve Sexauer, Chief Investment Officer for the San Diego County Employee Retirement Association. Uh, and, and Steve, one of the, the big panel discussions we were on together, we talked about AI and the use cases of technology and sort of just continue this thread, you know, that if there's sort of this optimistic and pessimistic view of the world and sort of the optimist side comes out on, on the tech side, how do you see tech as where the use cases for artificial intelligence are and, and sort of frame some of the conversations you, you brought to the people there? Yeah, so, so one of the questions came up is, is where, do, where do these technologies, machine learning, big data apply, where don't they? That was one conversation. The other conversation is there will always be winners and losers, and, and, and how do you manage that? So I'm going to break my response into one is if you have a lot of data, so for example, there were 369 billion global billion, is going to be global credit card transactions last year. So people are trying to figure out how you're going to spend your money, um, I mean, there's even things where Google is working with Visa to say, okay, we have all the searches Steve did. And then he went to a store, and you have, when he bought it at the store, we can link those. So there's a lot of micro-knowledge you can gain to incrementally maybe suggest things or make people better. And these machine learning algorithms are fantastic for that because I have a lot of data to train my algorithms on. But if you're trying to make a long-run decision like I have to do for a pension portfolio, you know, how many independent five-year returns do I have, even across 39 markets for, like, let's say, since 1921? Not many, like 772. Has You can't use these technologies there. But I think they'll be used any time, one, there's a lot of data and you can make things better, and two, um, in expert systems where you're trying to give somebody some advice on how to make a better decision. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind, the core algorithms, there's more data, there's more computing power, Kind of the underlying algorithms go back to probability rules and mathematical rules that literally go back to the 1700s. So it's not like we've found some revolutionary new formula. We've just found we have the data to apply it to in some certain circumstances. And the computing power as well. <laughs> 
to, yeah, to that's apply. That's a good point. I mean, yeah. you got five billion people on the planet. What are we walking around with? Well, supercomputers and our mobile phones relative to a generation ago. We can do broadcast television from those live anywhere in the world. And um, we can watch, we can talk to anybody. And, and you know, you want to see how powerful that is. Look at what happened between China and the NBA last week. Just think about that. One person in one city with one team shares their opinion about something happening in the world. And within 24 hours, it's an international event. And within 48 hours, a whole industry that's been decades in development, the NBA and basketball in China, it's all of a sudden in question. I mean, that just shows you how powerful these technologies can be in certain domains. Yeah, actually, what I want to say is that um, in social media, it probably didn't get enough attention, but there are games, you know, last night, um, uh, two, two nights in Shanghai, continuous NBA games in China that is all full, you know, stadium full. So sometimes the social media can get a little bit out of touch with the reality on, on the ground. Yes. But let's go to investing for a minute because this is an investing phone call. You know, are these algorithms and all these fancy things going to change how much money money managers can make for their clients? Not much. I mean, there would be some very on-the-edge kind of things that people can get a little bit of an edge. And then is one of the uh, really knowledgeable people in the industry, Ron Kahn, once said, you know, it's an arms race. But the problem is you got lots of people with arms that are racing. But for regular decisions that are going to last over a couple of years or five years – you know, there's just there's no magic bullet here by using these. Uh, in fact, anything when people come in and pitch to us and say, "Oh, we have this machine learning thing," and you know, it's just ninety percent sales and ten percent reality. How do you so given all this uh, inputs on sort of slower growth around the world, the productivity challenges or sort of the the population challenges leading to sort of lower growth, lower interest rates. How do you forecast that into what you do as an asset allocation, sort of from top down, and where you're thinking about the opportunities today? Uh, two things, Jeremy. One is base cases. Things are going to be slow. You know, if, if the global economy is going to grow in real terms, 3%, and let's say we do get 2% inflation, that's five. Equities, equity earnings aren't going to grow more than that. At these valuations, it's hard to imagine we get lots of multiple expansion a couple percent of yield. So you're talking, you know, 6%, you know, 7% in equities and bonds, you know, the old rule is whatever the starting coupon is because the reinvestments of the coupons and the principal that matures, you're going to get the starting coupon. So be pretty humble. You're going to get, you know, mid single digit returns in a balanced portfolio. But the question you asked, long-term growth, I think there is one thing to watch for long-term growth is if there are changes structurally to how the economy operates and how these underlying factors operate, it can bump up. So as much as we're upset with the turmoil, with uh, the current political standoffs, they could lead, you know, what a status, they could lead to good outcomes or bad outcomes. And what do statisticians do? They enumerate the outcomes, put probabilities on them, and assess the probability. So what I do is, you know, there's a path here where Brexit ends well, the China-U.S. thing ends well. Uh, in the U.S., we've dramatically increased the cash flow to corporations. And, and we, you know, if you look, I encourage everybody to print the pages in the Federal Register as a time series. Or, Jeremy, maybe you can send it out. It's stunning how fast new regulations in the U.S. have dropped off. Now, I'm not saying all regulations are bad, but less regulation, more growth. And I think you're seeing this reality, as was pointed out at the ECB meetings and at the Madrid meetings that, hey, there's the real side of the economy we got to pay attention to. So I look at it and say, if those changes really do come through, earnings will be higher, markets, PEs can be higher, and I'm not betting against that. What, what's, hand, a, yeah, what's the equivalent of a federal registry in Europe? Oh, good question. I don't know. Maybe we'll um, find out and write yeah, about I, it. I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've heard, no, I've heard the dramatic drop in, in the, the, the pages of the Federal Register here in the U.S., so that's a, that's a good point there. The, it's breathtaking. The, um, when you think about the valuations internationally, you hear emerging markets are quote-unquote cheap and Europe is at discounts. And I, I sort of showed some charts that Europe had its worst 10-year return really in 40 to 50 years. Do you see that possibly turning? Is that a, you know, if, if this Brexit goes not as bad as people think, is that where you're saying there may be some sort of value stories internationally? Yeah, so Jeremy's talking about uh, some charts he shared where he shows the 10-year trailing returns of basically – 
the developed markets in EM versus the U.S., developed markets on U.S., they're dramatic. They're actually rather breathtaking, so I would encourage anybody listening on the call to, to look at Jeremy's charts. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm doing this for decades. Those those things typically reverse. You don't know when, you don't know why, but it's a global capital market, and you just it just doesn't go on and on like that. So um, I would not bet against EM and DM right now. And uh, if the and I if the changes occur that are structurally positive, you you know the valuations and the potential growth rates. So you definitely want to overweight them. Yeah, no, it's it's been just as U.S. dominates the world, and there's nothing. There's been no crack, and so I, now I think some of it is, you know, in the same time that the U.S. has outperformed, it's been a growth versus value story. In some ways, I think Europe just represents everything that's true about value and overweight to banks and underweight to tech, and it's sort of that same thing magnified. Do you do you worry about growth in the U.S. as a similar, you know, related point? No, I think the growth will be fine in the U.S. I think the difference is just valuation. Um, you know, part of Jeremy and his uh, analysis had a really good chart. I encourage Jerry to send him around. He shows just the returns to the tech sector in the U.S. They're dramatic. Yeah. But, you know, the earnings really grew. I mean, you can take the fangs, and I've done this, and just look at their returns point to point for the last, let's say, seven years, and then look at the point to point change in their sales and their earnings. They're one to one. Google goes thirty percent per year. There's, I mean, it's just dramatic. Yeah. Well, that's not going to continue, right? Because we'd have one company in the world, Google. So that you know, that's going to slow down. Any? Uh, so we're in our final minute, Steve. Any sort of concluding thoughts about the GIC or or the trips generally that uh, you'd, you'd point people to? I, I think my concluding thought would be: I came away. Um, surprised at how entrenched people were that, you know, it's going to be central banks and even central banks. You saw Draghi today, our president Draghi today saying, you know, we need, we need coordination of fiscal policy kind of led by the central banks. Yeah. That, that was really like, really, you, know, you kind of said, really, you guys were 11 years into this and you're still pushing on that. But the, the positive side that came out of it was, I think there is a real realization that, um, the word political economy is really emerging, and if you, you know, if you look that word up, it's a branch of economics that deals with the economic problems of government. And so, you know, having a vice president of the ECB say, "Hey, there are other factors: regulation, fiscal policy, uh, education," and hearing a president of a Federal Reserve bank, in this case, President Evans, say the same thing, I was pretty encouraged about that. Very good. Steve, it was a pleasure to be with you in Europe, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Lee Chen. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. You are listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and I'm sitting with Jose Brito of Millennium BCP, uh, one of the largest private banks in Portugal. Jose, thank you for joining us on the program here in Madrid. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into Millennium. How did you find your way? I was, uh, we had some interesting conversations at dinner last night about your background and, and how you found yourself to be in, in Portugal today. But tell us a little bit about your, your background. Okay, Jeremy. Uh, so I'm, I graduated in economics in a, in a Portuguese uh, school. Then I started my professional career in Macau, which is uh, used to be a Portuguese uh, colony um, just uh, 40 miles in front of Hong Kong. And uh, so I, uh, that, that was at the end of the uh, last century. And so I, I had, you know, uh, first experience of what would, uh, the, 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 what would the, the Chinese economy or the potential of the China, Chinese economy. So um, I uh, witnessed firsthand um, the, the potential of, of that economy. So I, then I went to the UK when I did my PhD in monetary economics and returned to, to Portugal, where I worked at the um, central bank um, in close, in Portuguese central bank, and in close uh, connection with the ECB, and then went into the, the private sector, and now I, I had the research department at the uh, Portuguese bank. So tell us a little bit about the Portugal economy that came through the crisis. How, where, what is the state of your economy today? Okay, so um, we have in Portugal we had a textbook balance of payment crisis, but without the um, exchange rate adjustment mechanism because Portugal is now in the eurozone, so we couldn't depreciate uh, our way our way out of uh, of that depression of economic depression and the credit crunch. 
So what the, the Portuguese economy had to do was what we call the internal devaluation, by which uh, companies, they, they cut costs, they cut wages, they, they become more efficient. They um, try to inter internationalize themselves, the, the, the corporations, I mean. And so what we saw was a, a very deep depression, but very short-lived, because exports start surging as corporations uh, looked for alternative markets, alternative to the domestic market. And so a lot of companies died, but the ones that survived um, have become much more efficient and much more um, foreign-oriented. And so nowadays, uh, Portuguese economy is much cleaner. Is now, it has been growing more than the euro area average, which is not Uh, uh, very much, but still is overperforming the rest of uh, European peers. And I guess that's, um, that, that's good. Investment is, is growing faster than GDP. Exports are growing faster than GDP, which means that uh, that's the kind of uh, growth compos composition you want to see, especially after a big balance of payment crisis. And, and is there any notable parts of that economy like that are sort of outsized impact on the exports or just the overall strength of the economy, the, the composition, where, where is Portugal focused? Well, I guess that um, Portuguese exports are very well diversified when it comes to sector. Not in terms of markets, still very dependent on the European market. 75% of exports go to the uh, European Union. But sector-wise, it's very, very much diversified from tourism, which, which is the best, which is the, the biggest chunk of um, uh, Portuguese exports. But also the auto cluster is, is very uh, lively and is doing very well. Uh, you know, capital goods, consumer goods, um, agricultural goods. So it's very well diversified, with, which is uh, which is important um, in this day and age. Because if there's a hit to any sector, then uh, the diversified structure of the economy will enable for the exports to to keep uh, running. Um, and that's 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 been the case for the last uh, uh, seven to eight years. Well, since you made the case on tourism, make the the tourist pitch. Why should people come visit Portugal? Where should they visit? You're showing me. How how close you are to, to Lisbon uh, and living right on the beach. Yeah, well, Portugal is one of the most ancient countries in the world. It's 900, uh, almost 900 years old. It has a lot of uh, beautiful buildings. Um, the coast is, 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 very, is very nice, very nice beaches. Um, inclusively, like in, in a 30-mile radius uh, around Lisbon, you have very, very... Uh, a lot of many, uh, um, sorry, a lot of uh, nice beaches, and um, and so you have also very nice um, uh, food. Um, I guess that I'm biased, but the people, the people yeah. is, is nice. They are welcoming, and uh, and uh, it's it's very safe, and the weather is great. So uh, There's basically, a pitch. <laughs> um, now is 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 the uncertainty over Brexit? Has anybody decided that Portugal is a home um, that? They should call home. I know everybody talks about Frankfurt and you know other other places in Europe. Is is uh, anybody relocating to Portugal? Well, not for the main functions. We have yeah. some some uh, back office. Uh, actually, there's some some big banks transferring some some back office stuff uh, from London to to the north of Portugal. But that's I would say that's Small. marginal in in the great scheme of things. Um, so now tell us a, a bit more about Millennium BCP. So a private bank had some issues with the crisis. Maybe talk a little bit about your firm and, 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 and the, the backers there. Sure. Um, so, well, when the, the, the European uh, sovereign crisis hit, basically all Portuguese banks uh, went uh, insolvent or quasi-insolvent. So there was this program, uh, this, this um, of, of state funding, capital funding. Um, so to to um, make the or to allow banks to stay afloat, and then each bank tried to uh, sort their, their their problems out. And in the case of Milan BCP, uh, there were uh, foreign um, uh, shareholders that bought controlling stakes. Um, And, uh, and nowadays, the, the, the biggest uh, shareholder is, is a Chinese um, con, con, con group called Fosun. And, um, and so basically, Milan BCP has now a, a very solid uh, shareholding structure. And its, it's operations spread uh, from Portugal, uh, 
the, the Portuguese-speaking um, African countries and also a big operation in Poland and some scattered uh, um, operations in, in China and in, in Macau. So basically this is a Millennium BCP aims to be or aims to uh, foster um, or be a, a you know a international platform, Atlantic platform to basically uh, um, um, convey investment uh, from every part of the world into African countries or into the European Union or even into into China, given its its privileged uh, relationship with with the Chinese. Um, it's fascinating to see China like looking at the stress in Europe and saying, "How can we diversify outside China?" One of the big Chinese groups buying, taking sort of the opportunity to see sort of distressed assets and and coming to Europe. I mean, is that is that uh, your view there? Oh yeah, well, the, because there was a fire sale prices in in some uh, big financial corporations in in Portugal and in Europe as a whole, and so. This this Chinese group also bought uh, bought a controlling stake or a, a, a big chunk of of this Millennium Bank I, that I work for. It also bought the biggest insurance company. Uh, also bought a, 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 a health group, hospitals and, and pharmaceuticals and so on. And so basically, the, the Chinese took took this opportunity. The Fosun took the opportunity to buy at very good prices. Um, and, and have a foot uh, in, in the European market, which which was very clever. Yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, you hear of all the China-U.S. trade wars and what are they going to do, and they have all these reserves, you know, investing in treasuries, and then you have the, the companies, and, and but they're, they're looking to buy overseas assets. We saw the Hong Kong Exchange try to buy the London Stock Exchange. I mean, you do see a lot of a lot more of this capitals in China, and it's going to come around the world to find uh, interesting bargains. So it, it's interesting for that. Um, when, when, so as you as you think about your clients and how they're investing around the world, do they tend to be focused on Portugal home assets, European assets? How do they think about diversifying their own portfolios of, you know, for the for the people who may not be familiar with the Portuguese clients? But the, the Portuguese, the, the locals. Yes. How are they investing? Um, well, basically, there's there's a lot of opportunities in in, in Portugal nowadays. Uh, the real estate is doing very well, um, and so um, there's there's a lot of money being allocated, capital being allocated into, into that sector and construction as well. But there's there's also uh, because there's um, many companies that are finding their way um, into exporting markets. There's there's a lot of capital also uh, going into manufacturing and. Um, uh, to support this uh, this export uh, growth, um, so basically in, in in Portugal, I would say that uh, uh, most of most of the investment is is basically locally oriented. Locally, so the, a lot of people have this home country bias around the yeah. world that they stay invested in their home country. Is that so? Of like an equity bond portfolio, and it sounds like they have a lot of real estate, but. Is it it's it's dominated by Portuguese equities or? Well, the the Portuguese equity market doesn't exist anymore. Almost. Yeah, it's small. Yeah, it's very small. Uh, some companies failed during the during the, the crisis. Other, uh, for example, the banks were, were bought by two banks were bought by uh, Spanish other Spanish uh, banks, and so they just disappeared. They were, they were unlisted, and so it's it's very small equity market. But the, the bond market is, is is growing, and and there's there's these huge home buyers, and so a lot of Portuguese investors are invested into into uh, the financial players at least. They are invested into Portuguese uh, bond issue. Uh, sorry, Portuguese bonds. Um, yeah. Portuguese issuers bonds. And and do they think then dominate by eurozone equities if they allocate to equities? How do you think they they look there? Uh, well, I, I would say it was probably. A lot of a lot of uh, European equities, but also U.S. equities as well, uh, because it's a, it's a deeper market. It has these big names, uh, and so there's a lot of. I, I would say that there's a lot of uh, people investing in U.S. equities as well. Got it. And and how are they dealing with the negative rates? Um, does Por- does Portugal have uh, negative rates at the moment? They're still positive. No, no, they they well, it's it's the the. Um, Government bonds curve is negative until the seven-year maturity, so and the ten-year is yielding below uh, twenty basis points, and so um, a lot of people are just 
try to front load what the ECB might might, might do until they are just buying uh, for capital gains. Um, the, the more institutional money like insurance and pension funds, they are stuck with uh, whatever they can get, and that's very low yields. Um, but um, in terms of but in terms of, of investment, basically people are just uh, trying to uh, get away from bank deposits and and, and get some some um, some positive yield either in corporate bonds or, or long uh, uh, government bonds or, or equities. And, and does your bank charge people for the deposits? Or do they get to keep? Do they get any return on on deposits, or is it like a checking account fee because of the such low negative rate at the short end? No, it's it's not. Um, in Portugal, is 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 uh, is illegal to ch- to charge negative interest rates. Uh, so there's some sk- banks are adopting some schemes of of like charging commissions. Uh, but that's only to big uh, corporate clients, not to retail not to clients. Retail. So basically, the retail clients are getting zero on there. It makes it makes it it makes it tough to uh, to to earn the return when you have the uh, f- for the banks being charged. They're, they're able they're they're earning the negative deposit rates, but then they have to pay zero. Sort of another cost of funds and cost of financing. Yeah, that's that's right. That's that, that's a problem for for banks. But on on the other side of the coin. You have um, that uh, imp- impairments are decreasing very fast, and of course, lower debt uh, servicing costs help uh, help that. So um, it's not good for banks, negative interest rates, but they, there's there's two sides to the, to the issue. We're talking with Jose Brito of Millennium BCP, a Portuguese, one of the largest Portuguese private banks, about his view on. On, on Portugal, Europe, uh, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about your your local economy. Talk about the eurozone itself and the euro. So you mentioned, you know, the, you, at the beginning of the interview, you couldn't adjust your currency because you were stuck in the euro. Um, I, I'm curious on on your view of the euro. I mean, you were showing some charts earlier at your presentation today about the euro at a, at a critical moment in its technical patterns. Um, and so I'm just curious where you think the euro is, and then we'll sort of talk about can you leave the euro. Right, okay. So basically the, uh, the ECB's monetary policy has, has become uh, very aggressive again, so very dovish, uh, very accommodative. And one of, one of the channels by which this uh, accommodative monetary policy works is by weakening the, the exchange rate. Um, and that's being very welcome in, in, in especially in Germany but in, in other European countries because what we have seen is that in the case of, of Germany and the Eurozone as a whole exports have been slowing down pretty bad and that's mainly because of China China's slowdown and the global economy slowed down and so I would say that um, all the policy all the policy guns are pointed towards uh, you know not all, but uh, one, one of the big goals of policy nowadays is to bring um, uh, the value of, of the euro down. Of course, that will create problems with uh, probably with the uh, U.S. administration, uh, but we'll see what happens in, 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 in that field. But I, I would say that, uh, if anything, I, I, I would see the euro closer to parity against the U.S. dollar. And that's more likely than than the the one twenty. Yeah, the one twenty parity before one twenty. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it it didn't quite hit parity on its last trip below like one hundred five. It'll be interesting to see if it cracks it there now. Um, and what's the catalyst? And maybe maybe Brexit's the catalyst. We heard the ECB governor uh, say that people were underpricing the risk of Brexit. Um, did that mean anything to you? Like, what was what? What do you think he was trying to suggest yesterday at the big conference here? Well, I guess there has been a, a big shift in the um, in the negotiating uh, strategy of of the um, European Union when it comes to Brexit, because uh, before the pervasive um, stance was that Brexit is was very bad for Britain and would be just you know uh, just just a, a very uh, it wouldn't have much impact in continental Europe. But now that Boris Johnson took over uh, the British government and is and is uh, using a, a much uh, tougher stance when it comes to to Brexit, I guess that the European leaders in this in this uh, side of the channel are realizing that the costs of a Brexit for continental Europe could be could be very significant, and so they are now changing the strategy 
um, with the aim of accommodating more of the British uh, of the British um, uh, goals and, and ambitions when it comes to uh, Brexit. And so I guess that what the what the this uh, vice president of the ECB was was telling at the conference was that uh, we we have to appreciate the real consequences of Brexit, and and I, I guess he was sending a message that Europe has to accommodate more of the British demands in order to make Brexit as orderly as as possible. So Britain's trying to leave uh, the EU, and we were talking, you know, can somebody like Portugal? leave the euro um you know we were talking about who might benefit the most italy's been one of the big risks or sort of lagging general economies do you think italy should leave the euro can they leave the euro uh, what's your view on that well that's that's a very complex uh issue i guess that uh, italy has hasn't done well at all uh within the euro uh, because basically its economic model was one by which they kept uh, they they uh, they kept competitive by um, you know by via uh, effects depreciation over time. So they have a kind of an informal crawling peg. So they they would depreciate the lira every year, and that would you know maintain their competitiveness uh, edge. Within the euro, that's not possible anymore. And so all those inflationary inertia into prices and wages that m- made Italy all of a sudden much less competitive. And so, uh, so they have stagnated since the inception of the euro until now. So they average growth rate from, from 99 to uh, 12, 19 is 0.0%. That's their average 20 growth years rate. of no growth is tough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, it hasn't been uh, good good for them. Whether they can leave the euro, I guess if they leave the euro, then the European Union project is dead. And so what, how I see that is uh, the European, in Brussels and European politicians accommodating some of the demands of, 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 the, of, this, uh, of the Italian government. And you can see that there's been a shift in the, in the political um, stance uh, of the economic policy stance of, of Brussels. And now they're talking about uh, like increasing investment in inf- infrastructure, in relaxing the fiscal rules. And that's exactly what the, the previous prime minister, uh, Matteo Salvini, uh, was, was asking for. So in, in, in a sense, Italy kind of, kind of now dominates, uh, dominates the, the economic agenda because everyone knows that uh, if they leave, then the European project w- would probably be in, in very bad shape. Yeah, and, and the issue there is all about fiscal spending, government deficits, and you're hearing all sorts of calls. I mean, even uh, with, with Degunda speaking at, at this GIC event, calls were repeated for stepping up fiscal spending, the calls for Germany to do more, basically, the people who have space, and Germany's running these big surpluses, put your space to work, we need some sort of joint banking union, some joint fiscal union, some integration in the capital markets union, so we can have this investment spending. Is fiscal the new story for Europe? Monetary policy is at its limits, it's all fiscal from here? Well, uh, taking from the, the speeches of the policymakers, that's that's what's on the cards. But um, I'm very skeptical of whether it will work, because uh, you you've seen that in Japan they've been doing uh, that. All all the policy narrative uh, that has been going on in Europe for since the crisis has been uh, tested. Uh, and failed in Japan. So first they went to zero and negative interest rates, then to um, uh, asset purchases programs, and then into fiscal expansion. And it, it basically didn't didn't work at all in bringing um, inflation uh, inflationary pressures or generating growth. So basically we're going down the same path, a path that has been shown to be ineffective. So I'm, I'm very skeptical about the success of this new line of uh, policy. I mean, they, some people just say Japan puts one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. Just in October, they added a sales tax. Just lean into your fiscal plans, do your deficit spending. The Bank of Japan is going to finance it. But they put a foot on the brake at the same time they're stepping on the gas. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of crazy. But, uh... <laughs> um, 
so how do you do you think um, you know the, the the narrative from the European Central Bank has been that these negative rates are not the bank's problems? I mean, there's been questions all throughout this week on you have a, a bank selling at a half price to book that what is that? And there's a lot of commentators we've had on our show who blame the ECB at negative rates and saying they're killing their banks. And then you ask the questions to the central bankers. Nope, the problems are structural. They're net, we're not causing problems in net interest margins. They're declining before. They have excess capacity. Um, how do you do you think they're right that they're not causing the problems, that they're more structural issues? Or do you think they can ever exit from negative rates? Well, there's structural issues. But they they helping to 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 the problem in the sense that I, uh, of course, when you when you when interest rates are are, are uh, much lower, it's it's become much harder to to make interest margin. Uh, that's because that's because uh, typically the 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 side deposits are are uh, yield close to zero zero percent interest, and so when you compress interest rates, then uh, that margin that you get from side deposits, they, it, it, it just vanishes. But of course, there's structural issues. There's overcapacity. Also, there's this business model issue going forward. You see uh, fintechs and big techs challenging um, the banking banking markets, and so uh, there's a lot of reasons why um, you know uh, being a bank shareholder is is is, is tough nowadays. So give us your big picture worldview, knowing all that you do about the global economy, where rates are, knowing where the political risks, how would you suggest, uh, how would you allocate some portfolios? Would you, you know, equities, bonds, how are you thinking about it? Well, my, my favorite trade is, is, is to go long uh, treasury, treasury bonds, uh, U.S. treasury bonds. Um, and if you want to play on, on the safe side, you, you, you can just uh, bet on the narrowing between um, ten-year uh, U.S. ten-year bond yields and, and Germany bond yields. Because I guess that if for some miracle the global economy starts recovering, then there's a lot of uh, catching up for for German for European rates and, and, and German uh, bond yields in particular. Uh, but if the global economy doesn't doesn't pick up and if the U.S. starts uh, continue to slow down, the, the probably we'll see uh, much lower um, yields on 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 uh, U.S. Treasury bonds, and so that's my my take. And also, I also like gold because in, mm. with low um, real interest rates, then um, the cost the opportunity cost of holding gold disappears, and so I like also gold. And I think equities are overvalued, especially in the U.S. So rates are going to zero, or where's the bottom in the tenure at the end of this cycle? Well, I guess uh, they will be close to zero. They, they might go negative, but I, that I, I don't know. But I, I, I see U.S. Uh, bond yields much lower than than it's the case right now. Interesting. So that that helps make the case for gold. The lower rates go, you definitely see gold being a proxy for rates in a lot of. Lot of roads today. Yeah. Well, Jose, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for joining us. Any final closing thoughts of uh, how the people listening want to fo- follow your work at Millennium BCP? Um, well, unfortunately, we, we don't publish in English. We just publish in in, in Portuguese and Polish, and uh, and so that will be difficult for for U.S. Uh, readers. Uh, but uh, well, if you need anything from, from Millennium BCP or from Portugal, uh, give me a call. Very good. We're talking with Jose Brito of Millennium BCP here at the GIC conference in Madrid. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, sitting with Jill Fornito uh, in Madrid. She is the executive uh, director of the Global Interdependence Center who hosted this conference we've been attending in Frankfurt, Madrid. Jill, what a great few days a week we've been spending in Europe. Thank you, and thank you very much for joining us for the entire program. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about the GIC. Again, you've been uh, on, the, on the program before, but you guys host these central banking, economic-oriented conferences around the world. Tell us a little bit about the organization itself and, and some of the, the exciting programs you guys have coming up. Sure. So the Global Interdependence Center is a nonprofit organization. We're a neutral convener of dialogue, and we hold conferences in the United States and around the world on issues that affect the global economy. And so we've been in operation since 1976 when we were founded. We are headquartered inside the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. 
And we have about 15 to 18 programs every year. And this is our fifth fifth program that we've held in Madrid uh, in partnership with the Fundacion Rafael Del Pino and with the support from BBVA. And as you mentioned earlier this week, we were in Frankfurt with the Bundesbank and we uh, had the pleasure of including Charles Evans, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago for the entire week of programming. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting at the big public session with the ECB, I feel like he really made some news uh, Mr. De Gundos, I don't know if I could pronounce that right, but he was emphasizing that uh, the markets were underpricing the risk of Brexit, which was a big statement. It made a lot of headlines around. Uh, it was interesting discussions all around for this week. Thank so, you. So tell us a little bit more. What are some of your exciting programs? You have an event in December in Philadelphia. You have some events in California early next year. What are the, the topics and, and focal points for events coming up? Coming up in December, we have uh, our last event of the year. It's going to be a program that we're going to hold at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. And we're having an award ceremony for uh, our board treasurer. We're giving him our award for uh, the Global Citizen Award. And his name is Martin Heldring, and he's been our treasurer for eight years. And his father, actually, Frederick Heldring, founded the Global Hmm. Interdependence Center. So he's been a longtime partner and a supporter of the organization. So we will be honoring him with the Global Citizen Award on December 13th in Philadelphia. In conjunction with that program, we will also be having our College of Central Bankers 2019 members uh, uh, welcome. And so we will be inducting two new members to our College of Central Bankers, which is a new initiative that GIC has launched uh, last year, which is an effort to sustain our relationship with the former governors of the world's central banks. And so we launched it last year. Uh, We welcomed welcomed Governor Noyer of the Banque de France and uh, Anthony Santamaro of the Federal uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, as well as Bill Poole from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And this year, we are really excited to welcome Charles Plasser, former Federal Reserve Bank president of Philadelphia, as well as Dennis Lockhart, the former Federal Reserve Bank president of Atlanta. And that will be on December 13th in Philadelphia at the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, Starting off next year, we have a program in La Jolla, California, as you mentioned, on big data and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so that will be at the Conrad Previs Performing Arts Center on February 3rd. So you got a lot of good, exciting things. Uh, You could go to the Global Interdependence Center's website to find out a lot more about the programming. I'm one of the global sponsors at Wisdom Tree. We like to support their the organization, and, and they have a lot of good events. So we hope to see you at some of these events uh, next year. Yes, the website is www.interdependence.org. Jill, thanks for coming to tell our listeners a little bit about the GIC. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates.